Greetings and salutations, everybody. It's East Spencer Kite, Keyboard Kimura, Friendly Neighborhood Spencer Man, here on Wednesday, August 10th, which means it's time for one question for every fight for UFC San Diego taking place this week at a Pachanga Arena in San Diego, California, headlined by Marlon Chito Vera and Dominic Cruz. We're going to get straight into it, that main event. The question on my mind is what does Chito Vera gain from a win over Dominic Cruz at this point? Now, I understand that Dominic Cruz is arguably the best bantamweight of all time. The career he's had, the legacy he will leave behind whenever he decides to move on from this sport is tremendous. It's outstanding. You can't question Dom's resume. How those big, long layoffs came back, won the title back from TJ Dillashaw. Just a tremendous career. But at this point, at, at 37, and he's coming off a couple wins, fine, great, sure. But Chito Vera is coming off a dominant performance against Rob Font. He is ranked ahead of Dominic Cruz at this point. So outside of just another victory, what does this do for Marlon Vera? I'm going to answer my own question a little bit here for the first time probably on this show. What I think it does, the reason I think he takes this fight is, one, Chito has looked at the landscape of this division and seen that everybody else is kind of matched up. Everybody else has a dance partner. And rather than sitting out for an extended period of time, take the biggest name possible with the most high upside kind of fight. I think that's the logic. I think that's the thinking. And that's not a knock on Dominic Cruz to say he's washed and can't win this fight. We've seen Dom do great things. He looked fantastic against Pedro Munoz last time out. But I do think that that the way that Chito Vera is looking at this, or what I think we're going to find out on, on Saturday, truthfully, is that he looked at this as a stay busy fight, as a chance to headline, as a chance to put his name out there, as a chance to put another big win behind that Rob Font victory to keep the winning streak growing, to further sort of cement himself as somebody that is very much in that title picture. I'm going to have a piece coming out later in the week on sort of the rise and evolution and growth of Cheeto Vera because I think it's a thing we don't really talk about enough. He's a guy that started with very little kind of experience in terms of you know, the, the cleanliness of his skills and the depth of his skills and, and, and talents and techniques. And has crafted himself into a legitimate contender, in my opinion, the deepest, most competitive division in the UFC. And so I think this is an opportunity for him to go out and, and get another victory to further cement that standing. But we're going to see on Saturday night, because I'm sure Dominic Cruz has no interest in losing at home. I'm sure Dominic Cruz sees this as an opportunity to put himself back in the title picture. And so we'll see how this one shakes out when they get in there on Saturday. Co-main event of the evening, a weird one a little bit, admittedly. We all agree, Nate Landwehr versus David Onama. My question is, how will Onama look this time around? So earlier this year, back in February, he fights Gabriel Benitez, who is also on this card. We'll get to him in a minute. And he looks great. Goes out, takes everything that, that Mowgli's throwing at him in the first round. Bunch of low kicks, bunch of power shots. Rolls with them all, deals with them all, gets the first round stoppage. Looks like the prospect I thought we saw when he fought Mason Jones in his short notice debut and became a guy that, that went on my radar as let me see him in his natural surroundings. Last time out, he fights Garrett Armfield II on short notice. They had fought as amateurs. Onama got the win. Armfield, it's the only loss of his amateur career. Comes in. It's sort of one of those fights. And, and now that we have a little more space from it, 
And now that we've seen some other fights, I almost want to liken it to Jamal Hill's fight with Tiago Santos. It's not the prettiest. It's not the best effort by a fighter that I'm very high on and have a lot of time for. But at the end of the day, he, he gets the job done. He gets the finish in the second round. He keeps things moving forward. He surely goes back to the gym and goes, okay, I have a lot to work on. But at the end of the day, we got a victory. We got a guy out of there at the finish. And those things are really important, especially in this developmental stage, especially for a young fighter like him. Now he gets a little bit more time to prep for Nate Landwehr. And, and I sort of wonder, and they were supposed to meet earlier this year, so there's been a little probably pre-prep for this fight that they can go back to. And I just wonder, are we going to get something closer to the Gabriel Benitez version? Or are we going to get the Garrett Armfield? Because this isn't a huge lead-in of a training camp. This isn't a great big, you know, here's 12 weeks to prepare for Nate Landwehr. This is more like here's six weeks and we're going to get you in there. But does that earlier prep for March or, or going into what was going to be a fight in March help make this the best the best version or a better version of David Onama on Saturday? Third fight on the main card. I'm sure this one has a lot of people scratching their heads as to why it's here. But the question that I'm going to ask is actually, I think, sort of part of it. Yasmin Guraji, I surely screwed up that name, against Yasmin Lucindo. My question is, what kind of prospects are we dealing with here? Uh, Yasmin Jaragui, maybe. Somebody can correct me. Hit me up in the comments. Let me know how badly I'm butchering that. Give me a wave file of it. I need Annex. See, this is why they get the pronunciation files. She's 23 years old. She's 8-0 as a pro. She trains at Entrum Gym. She is a jiu-jitsu player, very good apparently, but we don't know. Whereas Yasmin Lucindo is 20 years old. She's 30 and four as a pro already. She beat Sarah Froda, who's in the UFC a couple years ago. And I just sort of wonder my question for this one, and I'm actually going to watch this one very closely because I want to know what we're dealing with, is are these long side upside talent, like long-term upside talents, or are these just a couple more bodies to fill out this division and add into this mix? The sense I get from looking at their records, from checking out what film I can, and from getting, you know, kind of a little, a little picture of them is that there is some upside here. Now it's untapped upside. It's still raw, still in the developmental stages of things, still have a long way to go to sort of reach full potential but they don't look like they're just bodies to throw out there that have no skill, no talent, no capability of going forward. And so I fully understand people that will say, well, why is this on the main card and not say the opener? Sure, I agree with you. It's, it's a weird fight to have in the middle of the main card, but I'm interested and I hope everybody checks it out because I have a feeling that both of these women will be around for a little bit, have some success, become people that we hear from down the road. Next up, light heavyweight matchup, Devin Clark and Azamat Mirzakhanov. My question is how has Mirzakhanov adjusted since his last fight? So he made his UFC debut earlier this year against Tefan Chukwi, came out like a house on fire in the first round, couldn't get Chukwi out of there. 
in the second round. Chukwe rebounds, starts building momentum. We go into the third round, and at the start of the third round, it feels like Mirzakhanov is absolutely exhausted. We're just going to see more of the second round. And to call it a flying knee is sort of, you know, disrespectful to full-blown flying knees. Like, it's disrespectful to Jorge Masvidal's flying knee. It was sort of more of a, like, jumping, kind of gliding above the air knee that Mirzakhanov lands and finished Tefan Chukwi with. And the reason I asked my question of, of what has he learned since that fight, how has he adjusted since that fight, is because we saw in the first round that he just, the energy was gone. So has he gone back to camp? Has he come away from that fight and said, okay, what do I need to do differently against these fighters in the UFC, these big light heavyweights, in order to manage my conditioning, in order to manage my energy better, that when we get to the second round and I don't get these guys out of here right away because that's often not going to happen, what can I turn back to? Do I have a second gear? Do I have reserves that I can pull from in order to have success in the second round and in the third round and not need a flying knee or a jumping knee to get a guy out of there? Devin Clark is an experienced dude. He's been inconsistent, fine, but he's not going to go away easy. We've seen him in fights where he's had his whole face busted, his whole jaw, his whole mouth, all of this right here busted up and punched in, and he's still like, cool, let me go fight. So this is going to be a tough assignment, and Mirzakhanov needs to show some development and progress from the last fight in order to continue this unbeaten run that he's on. He's undefeated for his career. He's a little older. There's not a huge window for him to have success. And so each fight needs to be a take it and learn from it situation. And I want to see what he learned from beating Tefon Chukwi. Flyweights up next, women's flyweights, Cynthia Calvillo and Nina Nunes. Originally scheduled earlier in the year. Question remains the same. Which of these two has most left to offer? Calvillo had some moments where she looked like she was maybe going to be a contender at strawweight. That didn't pan out. She moved up to flyweight. That hasn't really panned out. So here she is at a bit of a crossroads. Nina Nunez, same thing. Had a nice run to get into the top five at strawweight. Then ran into Tatiana Suarez. Then took time off to have the baby. Obviously have Reagan with Amanda. And then came back and lost to Mackenzie Dern. Armbarred very quickly. These things happen when you face Mackenzie Dern. And now she's moving up. And it's just sort of, yeah, like which of these two veterans, which of these two is going to come out on Saturday and show us that there's more here? And I don't mean like more here in the sense that whoever loses has to go away forever. Just more in the sense of can they be competitive veteran fighters in the middle of, in my opinion, the best women's division in the sport right now, in the UFC right now, I should say, because I'll do respect to all the Japanese women and, and, and the rising grand prix that, that went on very recently. That was terrific, but can they, can they be sort of part of that Jennifer Maya, not quite Caitlin Chukagian, but Jennifer Maya and, and that group of individuals, the Lauren Murphy's of the world, even as well, that present a challenge for the emerging set in this division, right? I talk all the time, about the young fighters at flyweight that are coming forward. Aaron Blanchfield, Casey O'Neill, Miranda Maverick, Macy Barber, 
throw Juju Miller in there, but way at the back of that line. Can one of these women become part of that group that becomes a good test for them? Or are they just going to be familiar names that stick around a little bit, but don't really have a ton to offer? Main card opener, middleweight division, Bruno Silva versus Gerald Mearshart. Question is, who remains in that second 15 kind of veteran finisher role? Right, Bruno Silva comes in, starts his UFC career with three straight finishes, then gets handed to Alex Pahea. Can't get Pahea out of there, suffers a decision loss, but did did okay for, for what it was. Like, I mean, he didn't get knocked out like Sean Strickland. He actually fought a, a wiser game plan of trying to grapple a little bit and trying to close the distance and and not just march forward accepting of bombs. Gerald Merchart was on a nice run, had three straight finishes, and then ran into Chris Jotko, suffers a unanimous decision loss similar to, to, to Bruno Silva. And so now they're both kind of resetting, right? Now it's, okay, who has to take a step back and who just hangs out here outside of the top 15, probably in the 20 to 25 range, 25 to 30 range, as the guy you can't really fuck around with, but you can beat if you're if you're meant to be in that top 20 and going forward. Mearshart's a guy that if you screw up and you give him an opportunity, you let him hang around, you leave your neck out there, he's going to snatch it. Bruno Silva for having a black belt is more of a, I'm going to punch you in the face and knock you out. Those guys always have utility. They always have value to me. I talk about this all the time, ecosystem fighters that we need in these divisions. So which one of them gets a victory on Saturday and gets to remain in their current role? And which one of them goes into the next fight, quite frankly, in a not quite must win, but a man, it'd be really great if you won this fight so you could stick around kind of situation. First fight of the prelims, a catchweight fight at 120 pounds. Angela Hill versus Lupe Godinez. My question is, how does Godinez do in her first real big test? So in her debut, she fought Jessica Panay, who is a big name, who is a former title challenger, but was coming back off four years on the sidelines for various injuries and USADA situations and things like that. So big name, but not necessarily an established contender, an established fighter in the division at that point. She's done well overall, had a good rookie year, went two and two, but one of those fights is a split decision loss to Penne. The other is up in weight on a week's notice against Luana Carolina, where she still held her own a little bit. She comes into this one on a two-fight winning streak. She absolutely trucked Ariane Carnalosi earlier this year to really make people kind of sit up and take more notice than they had taken. I think through that rookie campaign. And now she gets Angie Hill, who is absolutely established in this division, but also enters on a bit of a weird stretch, right? She's one in one in four or one in five in her last six fights. There have been a couple split decisions in there that you can argue and things like that. But at the end of the day, the results say what the results are what they are. And Angie's kind of hanging on. This is a hometown fight for her. She's older than I think most people recognize or remember at 37 but she's very much a stalwart in this division and the kind of person that if you're not ready to be in the top 15 if you're not ready to progress up the ranks angie hill will beat you and send you backwards 
And so we're going to see if Godinez can go in, be that dominant powerhouse grappler that we've seen thus far in the, in the best moments of her UFC career and get a victory over, over a ranked fighter for the first time and take that step forward. I think she can. I'm probably slightly biased because she trains about 45 minutes away from here at Titan MMA and her sisters wrestled locally here to me at, at UFV here in Abbotsford. But this is a really interesting fight. This is one that when it was announced, when it was added to this card, I got real excited. This is a fight. This is probably the fight I'm most interested in seeing this weekend. Because I think Godinez is somebody that can go forward and have some success in this division as she continues gaining experience. But we're going we're gonna to find out if that's the case on Saturday when she fights Angie Hill. Heavyweight battle between Dana White Contender Series alums Martin Budai and Wukash Breshki. Uh, my question is, how does Budai look with a fight under his belt? So he came out earlier this year, gets a win over Chris Barnett. It's it's on that card where there were two technical decisions, right? He lands. He's, he's basically beating the hell out of Chris Barnett for two rounds. Barnett goes back to the corner, says, ah, I got a broken rib. His corner says, yeah, you got to get back out there. Dom Cruz gets on comms and is like, no, it's his corner's job to send him back out there and get him ready to fight. I scream at my television. Martin Budai drops him with a knee to said midsection with broken rib. Fight continues. Barnett gets back to his feet. Budai's trying to get him out of there and he lands literally one elbow that is questionable. Barnett falls. We go to a technical decision. Everybody gets riled up and fired up. And we start the stupidness of, well, people are going to just look for a way out when they're up 2-0. Fine. Done. Hasn't happened since. Y'all were stupid for suggesting that. But that experience helps, right? Or, or maybe it, I would think it does. And so I talked to Martin Budai in advance of this fight through a translator, through emails. Shout out to, to Danny Rubin and Andre Meyerson for their help. And I just want to see if this guy that I think is, is somebody that can have some success, and he's my fighter to watch this week because I do think he can have some success going forward. I want to see how having that one fight under his belt sort of brings out something better of him or, or if it brings out something more from him this weekend against Mukash Breshki, who doesn't have that fight under, under his belt. They both won on Contender Series last fall. Breshki test, tested positive, similar to the Josh Quinlan situation. Pops hot, overturned, catches a suspension. Now he's coming back. I do think experience is a big thing. Sean and Harry talked about it on a recent episode of Speaker's Corner that you should go and find. I do think that one fight certainly helps. And it's only one, but it's one more than Wukash Breshki has coming into this. And so I want to see if we see a little bit more confident, a little bit of growth between those two fights, between the Barnett fight and this one, a little bit greater understanding of what he can do and bring to the table on Saturday. Because I do think... Heavyweight is always looking for new bodies. There's always opportunities. It doesn't take six, seven, nine fight winning streaks in order to climb the ranks. It takes three good wins to get you into the top 15. And I think Martin Budai is somebody that can get there, but I want to see if that's the case on Saturday. Lightweight fight. Gabriel Benitez versus Charlie Oliveros. I told you we would get to Benitez, but my question doesn't involve Mowgli. My question is, 
Well, the career of Charlie Ontiveros teach the UFC that they don't have to give short notice guys multiple fights. I've said this before. I've talked about this before. I've referenced it or likened it to NBA 10-day contracts. So Charlie Ontiveros does the UFC a favor a couple years back in 2020, accepts a short notice fight against Kevin Holland, goes out, gets slammed to the ground, suffers an injury, fight's done. It's, I think, lasts a minute and a half. He subsequently gets another fight a year later and, and loses to Steve Garcia in the second round in a back and forth. And yeah, it was entertaining, but it was sloppy and it was messy and it's two guys towards the bottom of the light, lightweight division. And yet here we are with fight number three for Charlie Ontiveros, who is 0-2 in the UFC and been finished both times and not shown me or anyone really much that suggests he's anything more than a bottom of the lightweight division kind of guy. And in today's landscape where we have so many fighters and so many people needing opportunities and wanting opportunities and the level of talent overall, both in the UFC and outside of the UFC has never been better. Do we really need to do a third fight with Charlie Ontiveros? Like I'm not looking to, I don't say it because I don't want this man to make money or have opportunities or anything like that, but we have to play the results. We have to play the evidence. And the evidence suggests that this man is not capable or not skilled enough, ready enough, whatever it may be, to hang at this level. And so rather than giving him a third fight, is there not someone coming off a win or that has had one loss to somebody that maybe they shouldn't have been in there with in the first place that could use a second fight or a third fight or whatever the case may be? I understand it's quite noble. And there was a point in time back in the day when, you know, you would see somebody get a short notice fight, they would be overmatched, they'd get overwhelmed, and you would think, yeah, but they've done they've done the UFC the solid, they're going to get that opportunity, and it's going to be a more reasonable opponent. And it was great. It, it made you okay with sort of the short notice opportunities. Well, Charlie Ontiveros has already had that, we'll give him one more chance, and we'll see, and it won't be Kevin Holland on a surge, it'll be Steve Garcia. And he didn't get by Steve Garcia. So I don't know necessarily why we need to do, need to do Gabriel Benitez on Saturday. Now, Mowgli's a little older, been beaten in his last couple of fights. It's been hit or miss for a couple of years now. I do think going up to lightweight will be a better version of him. He won his light, last lightweight fight over a guy in sort of similar position of Charlie Ontiveros. But I just wonder if we're going to reach a point where the UFC – and the matchmakers and the brass just sort of go, these guys need two. And if they can't get a win in two, if if the second fight out, if the fight after the short notice fight isn't a victory or something that goes, yeah, let me, okay, the, there's still something, maybe we move on. That's all. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm asking. That's all I want to find out on Saturday. Flyweight fight, O'Day Osborne versus Tyson Nam. My question is, can Osborne emerge as an entertaining fixture in the second 15 at flyweight? So you look at the flyweight division right now, top to bottom, one to 15. Great. Really good talent. Really impressed with it. Love the division. Love where it's headed. We don't need to go over the, can you imagine? Yeah, that was years ago, guys. We don't need to constantly do the like, can you believe the UFC was going to? They didn't. It's still here. It's thriving. Enjoy it. Stop reveling in the misery of days gone by. 
Osborne, I think, is a guy that isn't quite going to climb into the top 10, maybe not even the top 15. His one loss in the division is Manel Cape, which sort of, to me, sets a bit of the ceiling that certainly still has room to grow. But he's an entertaining dude, right? He's just frenetic and, and energy all over jitterbug in the cage when he gets in there. And the last two wins have been great. The knockout of Zaru Kadashev was was terrific. And I think he's a guy, or I want to see if he can be a guy, that just sort of lives outside of that top 15, good test for younger, inexperienced fighters coming up, looking to make that move forward, possesses some power, has some wrestling, is an opportunistic finisher. Can he just sort of sit into that role? Can he grow into that role? Can he become really a flyweight version of someone like Gerald Mearshart or Bruno Silva that just, or, or the best version of it to me, can he become flyweight Drew Dober? A guy that you just look forward to seeing him fight, not going to win all of them, but you know, they're going to be entertaining. If you beat him, you know what it means. If he beats you, you know what that means as well. Can that happen for Ode Osborne? I think he's, I like his story. I love the the connection of being a teacher and his kids calling him Mr. Ode and watching him fight on contender series a few years ago. Had a little bit of a rough go of things when he started in the UFC, losing two of three, but he's settled in at flyweight. He's settled in in Vegas, and I want to see if he can settle in in this division going forward. Next up, Yusef Zalal against Damon Blackshear. My question is, what are we going to get from Damon Blackshear? If you've listened to any of these shows, if you've read any of the stuff I write, you know I have a great deal of respect for people that compete on the toughest regional circuits there are. Zaman Blackshear won a title for CFFC. He enters this fight as their champion. I imagine he'll have to vacate, but such is life. He's on a nice little winning streak, trains a Jackson Wink, has some finishes, has some, has some grappling, which is where Yusuf Zalal tends to want to go. And so what are we going to get? He's a guy that has fought good competition, right? Fought Pat Sabatini back in the day. Fought Danny Sabatello back in the day. And, and we know what Danny Sabatello is doing now. So can he come into the UFC on a short notice assignment, uh, filling in for Christian Quinones against Yusuf Zalal, who himself at the start of his rookie year looked good. Three straight wins in, I think, five months or six months to kick off his UFC campaign before running into some losses, the first of which came courtesy of Ilya Tapuria, who needs to get back in action soon. We miss you. But can Blackshear come in, extend Zalal's losing streak, and extend his winning streak at the same time and show us, hey, there's, an, there's another guy to think about here at Featherweight. It's not an immediate, oh my God, put him in the mix. But at 27, with a bunch of experience on a very good regional circuit against good competition, if you go out and beat Yusuf Zalal, who I still think highly of, who I still have respect for, despite the recent setbacks, comes from a great gym, has shown us he can win at this level, then that gives me a little more reason to sit and invest and look at Damon Blackshear going forward. Short notice always complicates that a little bit, just because as much as anybody can say, I'm always in the gym, I'm always ready, all of those things, live competition and, and live rounds and the actual rigors of training camp are different than just being in the gym and then going out there and actually fighting and competing are different as well. So the bar isn't super high, but I just want to see what we're going to get from Debone Blackshear on Saturday. Opening bout pushed back from last week, Ariane Lipsky versus Priscilla Cashuera. The question remains the same. 
can Lipsky discover that KSW form in the UFC? As I said last week, I think we probably overrated some of the effort in KSW. They were good wins over fighters that were either previously in or eventually got to the UFC. Sheila Gaff, Diana Belbitza, uh, Silvana Gomez Juarez, Gomez, Gomez Juarez. Can't remember. My apologies either way. But it just hasn't been there in the UFC. And so here she is. We have a reset. She got ill last week after her weight cut and couldn't compete. She gets Priscilla Cachuera, who is durable and tough, but should be someone that if she is going to have that form or, or discover that form a little bit, that she should get out of here on Saturday. She should beat on Saturday. And again, kind of similar to the, if not, then you got to go away. It, it's not that, but it's, this is going to tell us where you settle in and whether we build a permanent roof on your ceiling, as opposed to we kind of continue to think about where the ceiling may be. Fights like this happen all the time. They're important, um, even if people don't think they're important from a divisional standpoint. They're important for each of these careers. So I want to see if Arian Lipsky, who is still on the right side of 30, who is still, you know, I don't think that promise of KSW goes away. I just wonder where it's went, if that makes sense. And so we'll find out on Saturday when she gets in there with Priscilla Cashware, who's going to come forward, who's going to come after her and look to get at her. Might thumb her in the eye like she did Jillian Robertson. Who knows? We're going to find out. It's a good card. As I said on Monday's podcast, if you go into this expecting 11 or 12 finishes, you're crazy. Last Saturday was an anomaly. It was a wonderful, magical night that we all enjoyed, that we all appreciate. We felt a sense of community with each other on, on Twitter and, and things like that. But you can't be coming into this one expecting the same. That said, it's a good card. There's some an, an interesting opportunities here for emerging talents. This is very much a Spencer card. Big main event, a whole bunch of intrigue below it. I hope you check it out. I hope you enjoyed one question. Thank you to everybody that has been enjoying the videos and leaving comments and subscribing and things like that means the world to me, you know that. We are going to start splitting these up. So we're gonna do audio on Substack and video strictly on the YouTube. I will link to each in their respective homes. It means that Harry's gonna end up convincing me to do the Monday podcast, that video, and we split that up. And by probably within a month, two months, once I get all of the gear that's coming my way, including some that he's sending me, Probably everything I do on Substack will have a audio component and there will be a video component of it over on YouTube because he keeps badgering me that video is the way and to stop writing. And it is faster. I got to give it to him. It sucks that I got to give it to him, but video is faster. You guys seem to enjoy it more. So I appreciate that. Hope you like this. Hope you check out the card. Check out the rest of the stuff we're doing this week. We will be back Thursday with 10 things Friday with the punch drunk predictions and the new you want to make a bet segment. And then we'll be hanging out on Saturday, watching fights, talking about them on Twitter. So stop by, check us out, pop in, say hi, appreciate you. Have a great rest of the week. Take care of yourselves and your loved ones. Be good to one another. We'll see you soon.